Are you ready for an exciting camp counseling career? Come to Crystal Lake, where our exclusive training program will take you from mediocre seasonal employee to full-fledged pro. Learn how to use hunting and survival tools such as the bow and arrow, machete, spear, and of course, the kitchen knife. We even have a chainsaw. But ladies, please make sure to keep clean during your menstrual cycle. There are bears around here. Hello and welcome back to March Mad Men. I, I really hope you got that that reference there with the bears and, and so on. As always, I'm John Evans and I am joined by my two quite remarkable co-hosts, Vikram Wheat and Rich Eckersley. We are here hey. tonight. Hey, Rich. Glad you're that's with my, us. That's my, that's my, uh, my morning zoo uh, work. I've been working on it. <laughs> nice. Nice. We just hey, need a... We need sounders. We got to cut in some sounders, uh, mm-hmm. like kazoos and stuff. But uh, yes, we're here, of course, uh, to take the thousand foot view of Friday the 13th, part two. It's one of our four finalists for the title of greatest slasher movie ever made. That's when, what this season has been all about making movies face off in a 64 film tournament and then eliminating them one by one in classic slasher fashion. Rich, uh, you seem exuberant tonight. Let's double back to you first. Uh, We missed you last time for the tail end of our autopsy of Friday the 13th Part 2. The body count continues. Uh, What's new with you, bud? Uh, You know, I mean, I apologize for missing the the back half of the last one. I actually have a competing podcast where we do autopsies on Anne Hathaway movies, and we were doing a double feature of The Princess Diaries and Brokeback Mountain. And it was just like, it was a really complicated night. And so I'm sorry to have missed it. I figure you guys can catch me up on on what happened, though. Uh, I, I'm sure that uh, that we can, and I'm sure that I can't wait to delve into that podcast as the Anne Hathaway completist that I am. And Vic, I'm sure you uh, you you share that sentiment. What's the latest uh, from the ranch up there in Agua Dulce? Well, I was just going to tell Rich that what he really missed. We we really barely talked about the movie at all. It was mostly just John and I shouting profanity at each other. It's true. Yeah, hey, I, you're you're a good man, but I I do hate you sometimes. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm pretty sure I told John that I'd I'd rather nail my dick to a burning building than do another podcast with him. But here I am. <laughs> ah, I I wonder what those uh, orange flickering lights were behind you. But, uh. <laughs> uh, I am I am very well. Uh, it has stopped raining. I'm delighted to take uh, another hiatus in, in what has become a, a damp January, uh, as opposed to a dry January, obviously. So I am uh, uh, thoroughly enjoying a Dragon's Milk uh, Stout, which is which is just one of my favorite beers in the world. So here, here. Uh, I will also just say that uh, if anybody has any suggestions for movies, you guys remember, like, I, I just had been binging horror movies for a while, and... I've really sort of run out of stuff. I mean, I actually downloaded uh, a new weird app to get, I don't even remember what it's called, but there I somebody on one of my uh, horror boards recommended a Korean zombie show called Happiness, uh, but they, you had to get a whole new app for it. Uh, so that's, that's how far. In fact, not only that, I wound up uh, watching a show about Korean broth cooking because it was at least, it was like it had the, you'll forgive the pun, it had the flavor of 
you know, sort of sort of Asian horror. There were there were octopi and abalone and shit that was still moving when they were trying to eat it. So uh, that's that's pretty much the depths to which I've sunk. I do want to issue one correction too, by the way, John. The last time we talked, I think I mentioned that the Alice in Borderlands show had one of the the best fight scenes I'd ever seen. It's still a fabulous fight scene, but I compared it to the raid. Since then, I have watched The Raid 2, and it is, it, I, I stand corrected. The last fight scene in The Raid 2 far outweighs uh, what was done in Alice in Borderlands. That's a fucking hell of a movie, man. Gareth Evans knows how to direct some action. Yes, he does. Absolutely, he does. And I'm glad you cleared that up. Otherwise, man, the pitchforks and the torches would be coming your way, man. I mean, yeah. you, uh, you really overstepped your bounds. And I'm, I'm really glad that you have hundreds of disposable hours to watch all of these things and no time to edit our podcast but uh let's move on (laughs) well he's gonna he's gonna have a lot less time pretty soon because i'm pretty sure that everyone who downloads that app ends up in squid game at some point (laughs) (laughs) oh i can't wait for the marble game man let's see how vic does uh, John, the, the truth is I've, I've just been drugging my wife and children to get some me time, and I, I ran out of uh, uh, Valium, so. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, my only update is, and I'm looking at myself in this screen, and, and I think you can tell I've gained about 10 pounds since the last one. Um, I can't exercise very much right now, and it's just been brutal. Uh, I hurt my knee, and going to physical therapy and meanwhile amy our good friend has been in town and vic it was great to watch football with you um last weekend and um yeah i'm just battling a a losing battle with my own failing metabolism so um that's that's what i've been doing that and you know um continuing to study this film in detail and i found some good stuff to talk about tonight so i'm excited we should probably uh, commence with that, but alcohol-wise, um, I can't wait to to find out what Rich is doing. But I just have the old skull mug going of uh, boring old Miller Lite because uh, I'm I'm counting my calories in, at this sad fat Elvis time of my life. Give into it, John. It, it it feels really good. Miller Lite is in fact boring and old. I can <laughs> I can concur. Uh, Uh, At least I put it through my little, like, soda stream nitro machine, so it tastes a little better. (laughs) Sadly, it's a a work night over here, so it's a a water night for me. Yikes. All right. Well, in a weird way, that makes me feel better about my life. (laughs) Good. That's what I really came here for. (laughs) Yeah, Rich, tell us what else sucks in your life right now. Don't get us started. (laughs) Okay. Well, um... I think we should get started. I mean, I do have a bunch of topics to cover about Friday the 13th Part 2, and I'm sure you guys have some things that uh, you're going to want to make sure we discuss as well. Let's just try to get to it all all of it in, in no particular order and uh, see where the night takes us. But to start off with, I thought I might say, don't know how much we got into this before, but it's worthy just to set the the stage that this is basically a remake of the first movie and i I like to think of it as a a new and improved cover version of a catchy song that was a hit but like the best covers this one figures out the most inspired parts 
of the original movie and doubles down on that with uh, style and conviction. For me, Friday the 13th Part 2 improves on and even patents the formula that would prove to be immortal in the slasher movie Pantheon. And I think we've said this in various words, but this movie is a pure distillation of what makes slashers so much fun to watch. And I say that even having like the last five or six articles that I read online were all about how crappy this movie is. So it maybe it's got my back up, but uh, I certainly read lots of happy and complimentary articles. You know, it's certainly a movie that not everyone in the universe loves. Rich, like we missed you last week. You've probably got a few bullets in the gun, man. What are your first thoughts about this film that you haven't covered in our um, initial autopsy? Oh, man, I don't know. Like, I need to, you know, I'm kind of catch up. Like, I actually can't remember where I left off. In between Anne Hathaway podcasts, I also had COVID, which kind of knocked me out and experienced uh, a major holiday, though I won't name which one. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Things are a little hazy from the first podcast that we did on this. Which, to be fair, was two months ago. No joke. (laughs) I mean, yes, it's been it's been quite it's been quite a while. (laughs) I will say that, like, I I'm with you. This movie is faster and scarier and smoother than the others. It's not particularly, you know, smart. I don't think that that's the strength of the of the Friday 13th films. But, you know, we've talked about it before where it's like, you know, this movie isn't back to basics because this movie is the basics. Um, As far as I'm concerned, I mean, I know that 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 this movie on its own has been accused of ripping off, you know, films up to, you know, like I think like a decade, you know, prior to it. But still, I'm with you. This bakes the mold for the movie that we would come to understand the slasher film to be. And I think that, you know, the the you break down just like the kills in this movie and you have like a real set of iconic, not just moments of on-screen demise, but you also have like a, a pretty like decent cast of characters. When you're talking about like the camp counselor mold, you have Jason as a, you know, as an, as an imposing and yet somewhat invisible goon out in the forest I mean, this movie has all of the tentpole items I'm looking for when it comes to a slasher film, and it's just delivering them with gut-punching efficiency. Like, that's where it's that's where its strengths lie. And so, yeah, I think like it's like the way to navigate this film is through the people in it and what happens to them. And that's a good thing. I mean, that's a compliment right off the bat, I think, that we, we are interested in those kinds of details with the story and the people and the cast and the characters and all of that. And, and as lightweight as this movie is, and it's certainly it's about 75 minutes soaking wet minus the, the um, flashback open the reprise of the first movie. Um, I, I think that there's something to that. Uh, Vic, take it away, man. What are your thoughts so far on our overview? <laughs> well, the, thing that has struck me is the the degree to which especially after going through our autopsy that this as you said really is sort of the template uh to the effect that and this is something that comes up in screen that people forget that jason isn't in the first one uh and so it 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 
like that's how much I really feel like in our just cultural consciousness, we start with this one. And mm -hmm. to that to that point, I found something very interesting in the original New York Times review uh, of Friday the 13th Part 2 by a writer named John Corey, uh, who I didn't know I needed to hate, but now I do. New York Times is a terrible record of their reviews of, of horror films, especially ones that turn out to be good, uh, at least in retrospect, because here's what he says. <laughs> For what it's worth, part two opens with a dream sequence, a reprise of the original movie. In the original, a crazy mama's boy killed a lot of counselors at a summer camp. In the <gasps> sequel, the crazy mama's boy comes back and kills a lot more counselors. Like That's shoddy you, journalism. Shoddy. Did you even watch the movie? Like, that's what it, it he's yeah. talking about the part of the movie. <laughs> That explains that it wasn't Jason. So, yeah, I just, I, I, you know, it seems like going all the way back to its initial release, people have been have been projecting Jason onto the first film. And I think that really speaks to the strength of this film. This is the start of the Friday the 13th franchise as we as we think of it. And, yeah, I think this for everything that it built off of uh, for better, you know, for better and worse. This is the template of the the slasher's film, the slasher film that dominated the '80s. Yes, even more than Halloween or Texas Chainsaw for the purposes of this conversation, right? Exactly. Well, that's what I mean. Is it's I'm not saying it's the best version of it, but I'm saying that if you were if you were to to pick any of the other like 64 movies that we put on here, you could find the the direct influence of this movie. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, I think, uh, in a way that you might not be able to find so directly with Texas Chainsaw or even Halloween. Yeah, and this isn't really the time to get into that distinction because obviously Texas Chainsaw and Halloween are uh, and Black Christmas are the other films vying for the the trophy, as it were, uh, that we're giving out here of the greatest slasher film of all yeah. time. I'm going to jump in because I almost forgot I wanted to tell you this, and I told Emily I was going to do this. Mm. Emily's birthday was uh, this past weekend, and she wanted to watch a romantic comedy. And we wound up watching, with my kids, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now, I know you're sitting there going, where the fuck is he going with this? Why are we talking about my Wait, Big Fat Anne Greek Hathaway's Greek? not in that. Anne Hathaway is not in that, although I forgot she was in Brokeback Mountain, so that threw me for a loop for a second. Yeah, me too. Uh, but, uh, no, you know who is? Andrea Martin. Man, when she came up on screen, I was like, Emily, did you know that Andrea Martin is the most nominated uh, uh, Tony for Tony's actress in, in theater Broadway history or whatever? Uh, she was like, why do you know so much about Andrea Martin? <laughs> and and if I were you, I, you know, I would say, because I'm Vic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's just so you. <laughs> yeah, I know that's way too meta, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just ex have certain expectations, Vic. Yeah. Uh, and I'm uh, glad. But no, I had to explain because of the because of this podcast, I am now a fucking encyclopedia on Andrea Martin. Uh, <laughs> and yes, it comes it comes into other parts of my life, people. It doesn't just begin and end when we hit record. All right. It's 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 all over my life, and my wife is 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 really struggling with it. Uh, I know, I know. Being one of the world's foremost uh, authorities on on Andrea Martin is uh, certainly a lot of pressure. But 
you know, one of the other things about this film, I think you 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 both somewhat touched on it, uh, especially you, Victo, is that this is the the link between the sort of Giallo-inspired mystery whodunit paradigm that the first movie employs, and that yes, granted, a lot of subsequent slashers return to as a formula, but this is also the bridge into the Jason centric version incarnation of this franchise that takes over even more dominantly in the third movie, but will of course come to encapsulate the, the spirit and the uh, impact of Friday the 13th is like, we have this mega star, this super iconic anti-hero at the, at the center of the franchise the rest of the way. And so, yeah, the template for the series is established here, but what makes it interesting is that this is the early days. And I, I will get into that a bit later. I think as we talk about Jason, but this is his uh, rookie season as it were in, in football or any sports uh, terms. <laughs> and uh, one of the other things that, that becomes a template though is that in the first movie, Alice uh, Hardy didn't know anything about Pamela, and so kind of the way she ends up being the final girl, it's almost random. You know, she just happens to be there at the end. It's not like she's directly investigating, involved, defending other characters, trying to attack or, uh, you know, track down the killer. It's just kind of... um, you know, she's the she's the last person alive at the at the end. However, Ginny kind of from the beginning is aware of the mythology and no, she doesn't have this kind of shared history with Jason that a lot of the future protagonists will have. But she does have this kind of skill or insight that gives her a bit of an edge against him. And that is something, whether it's telekinetic ability or something, the future final girls and final guys, you know, Tommy Jarvis with his own take on the psychology of Jason that we're going to see in the future. And this movie is where that's laid down and laid down as I think we all agree with, with real skill. So much of this film, as we talked about is, is sort of a template, right? But I do feel like the final girl is the one thing that in all uh, in all of the other uh, uh, slasher films that we've covered, I'm not sure anybody tops that. Like it's it's one of the truly extraordinary elements in this movie that stands out. It's like of all the lessons you could take from this, you know, your your POV cameras and and some of your suspense, you know, tricks and and gore and that sort of stuff. Boy, why didn't people invest more in having a final girl uh, or a final guy, uh, a final character that really does feel like someone we can root for and someone with agency and someone that is sort of prepared to be a, a good foe to your killer, which gives your your final act its teeth if it's going to have any. And I feel like that's where most of these films fall apart and it's where this one really succeeds. Yeah, and I can't tell if like, I mean, I think it's a mix of having her be a decent character, but it's also like Amy Steele's performance in this that I think really, you know, carries it, like brings that that sort of like grit and personality that, that everyone responds to in it. 
and a real shout out to her her VW Bug, because uh, that car gives a really believable performance as uh, <laughs> shit. I'm I'm just glad, yeah, she didn't take it down to Texas because this movie might have had a very different ending. <laughs> oh man, those VW people do not do well uh, when they meet the Sawyers. It's like I counted at least three VW bugs in their backyard. All right, well, uh, doubling back to something we talked about the, in the first part of the autopsy when Rich was here, um, and I don't have too much on this, but I did find a little nugget that made me think. And the question that I wanted to pose here is where exactly is Alice Hardy when she's killed at the beginning of this movie? And we really kind of agreed it was a logical stumbling block, like, you know, how does Jason get there, et cetera. And this doesn't entirely resolve it. I'm I'm kind of retconning a fix here. But there is a clue in Alice's dialogue in her phone call with her mother, which, of course, is all improvised. But it does seem to suggest that wherever she is, is possibly counterintuitive or surprising. It, it is entirely possible because her mother is giving her pushback for being there and for going it alone that she may have chosen to return to the scene of the crime to some degree for reasons of psychology and confronting the trauma she's experienced, which I do think there is evidence that she is attempting to do. She is attempting to take this on head on, work through it in her own mind. She thinks she decapitated the woman. Like it's not super dangerous or risky. And I realize that the street that the house is on and whatnot is obviously not, you know, Crystal Lake, but exposure therapy or whatever you want to call it could have brought her closer to that place than we would assume just looking at the geography and the architecture and all that. So maybe it helps the tiniest bit with our sort of <laughs> Jason takes a bus and all of that, all of that stuff. Yes, he still has to track her down. But um, I did just thought think it was somewhat worthy of of mentioning that there's a, a, a clue in the dialogue that maybe she has revisited this trauma uh, geographically somehow. I mean, that, that certainly makes sense. But you're right in that the dialogue was improvised and there's nothing else to sort of suggest that. I mean, I would argue that for for everything we've talked about in terms of the movie's strength, the the logic in the setup is the weakness. Yeah, we've, yeah. we've twisted ourselves into pretzels to try and make sense out of any of it. Uh, and I think we've, we've put far more work into it than Steve Miner or any of the writers or Sean S. Cunningham did. Uh, you just it's you, you just sort of have to put that part of your brain on hold and enjoy the uh, enjoy the thrills, which, let's face it, becomes really part of the template for slasher films going forward uh, and certainly something that Halloween borrows from. Oh, many times. Many times. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. OK. Yeah. Moving on from that. I have a few quotations from Brian Keeper of or Kuiper of Bloody Disgusting that I'd like to share along the way. I'll just kind of sprinkle them in because I think he uh, he makes some insightful points. And that was part of my process for this show was just 
reading what other people thought and 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 pulling from that because I think um, you know we've talked about this movie for hours already. But uh, before I do that, because I want to talk about Ginny for a while, and and Rich started to touch on what makes her special, and um, believe it or not, I have plenty more to say about that because um i really do think she is a a special final girl um i kind of have a crush on her if it's fair to say don't tell my wife but anyway leslie hatton wrote on her everything is scary blog or his leslie is a name that could go either way um i love this quote Ginny is described as having an aesthetic that just screams champion lacrosse player which I think kind of sets the table. (laughs) I like that a lot. (laughs) All right, but no, Brian Keeper says, she has an air of life experience about her that is often not present in these characters. She's in a relationship with Paul, an older man. She's seen drinking at the bar. Paul makes comments about smoking weed, which he has likely shared with Ginny. She just doesn't come across as the virgin that so many of these other characters do. She ultimately, you know, as we all know, defeats Jason with her wits and even the male savior trope that often occurs in slashers is subverted when Paul is nearly killed by Jason and Ginny saves him by striking Jason with a a machete. So, uh, yeah, those were sort of excerpts from from his comments about her. But I know I have talked about Ginny at length, but I want to reframe this for conversational purposes to throw it back to you guys piggybacking off that in a horror genre where so many of our protagonists are dewy eyed teens or younger, you know, with the Tommy Jarvis and so on, they have scant life experience or sophistication. It's just, it's unique to have a final girl who seems like an adult. She's both a student and a teacher. She's a person who cannot be defined with any of our usual labels for final girls or final guys. I'm not quite sure how the script director and actor combine to give us this Ginny Field, but she kind of has a life of her own that I think transcends the modest ambitions of the movie. I think she's closer in some ways to the best self of the viewer, the person we like to think we would be in this situation than we usually get in these movies. And at the same time, she's not too perfect or powerful by any stretch of the imagination, whether or not you think she Peter Pants. <laughs> but Amy Steele's performance has that lived-in, naturalistic, textured quality that I think only a good actor can bring to a character. And as I mentioned in part two of our autopsy, which, yeah, Rich wasn't here for, uh, it did bother me a bit that Ginny kind of makes a fool of Jason down the stretch. And, yeah, it's easy to maybe say that's a bit contrived, hero armor, making it a little too easy for her. Once I thought about it a bit more, I think that it's often the case that Ginny has an answer for him. She's just right with him, move, counter move, in a way that we don't see in these slasher films. I think, legitimately, Voorhees in this one is kind of wily coyote to Ginny's Roadrunner. Because he's still growing into his paws and stuff. She just doesn't doesn't only stand up to him. She gets the better of him in a way that I, I think you can chalk up to her competence and resourcefulness much more than in other movies where it's just the screenwriter trying to bail out the, the heroine or the hero. 
you know, because they can't die and it's time for someone to get the better of Jason or whoever the slasher killer is. And I, I also want to draw attention to at the end when Ginny is reunited with Paul and they hear something at the door, possibly sensing the fact that Jason can't possibly be dead. Well, Ginny takes that pitchfork and there's a fantastic picture that I'm sure I'll put on one of these podcasts and she just, you know, sticks it out there, brandishes this pitchfork and she's prepared to fight. She's not running away. And yeah, Jason has the perfect distraction of this dog, whether it's Muffin or another dog or whatever the hell. Um, and he comes from behind and he gets the drop on her this time. But I think it's it's notable that Ginny was going to fight and maybe even win, I think, based on the way we saw uh, the outcome of their skirmishes earlier. So uh, that will frame the conversation, a little deeper conversation, if, if you guys are up for it, about Ginny. Rich, do you have anything more to say about Ginny? I mean, I think that what you're saying about the way that she counteracts Jason in the, you know, sort of the final movement of the film is indicative of how we're introduced to her. Like, she is smarter than you. Not yeah. you in particular. Uh, maybe. But, you know, but yes, perhaps. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, like, she's, you know, from the moment that we that we meet her with her exchange with, with Paul at the, the car, you know, like, she is one step ahead uh, of him. She's one step ahead of everybody else around her. Like, she's the smartest girl in the room. And that carries through to the to the very ending where, like you're saying, there's there's something about it and it's not necessarily a book smart thing although obviously she has an element of that but like there's sort of a street smart quality about her that she intuitively has an understanding of of people and that she's just like a little more clever than him well, um, like when, yeah, when so, she puts the exhaust in paul's face like that's so telling right like she knows right. what she's doing yeah she knows sure. the car and, and, and it's and it's just a gag but she's like playing him from like moment one Right. And she's like play, but at the same time that she's being like sort of sort of irresponsible, like she just has, you know, him wrapped around her finger. Right. Yeah. And it's like she's, you know, but but I think that comes from just being the kind of person that just has a has a read on people. And so, like, I don't know, I feel like it's what you're responding to is a consistency that you don't. It's not a character who is like you're saying, like a, you know, an innocent with no life experience who then in the 11th hour suddenly is able to, to outsmart the, the villain. Like her template has been baked from the, her first scene. Um, so the, there's a consistency there. And there's a, there's a through line that you don't often see in this kind of character writing. Exactly. Which earns her resourcefulness. Like it doesn't feel contrived. Yes, absolutely. I want to give some credit for this to Steve Miner, and I want to talk more about him later, but I do just sort of looking at his filmography, uh, you have a lot of strong, uh, well-written, well-rounded female characters in, uh, in, well, I guess I don't, I don't want to go too far with that. You have a lot of strong female leads in Jamie Lee Curtis in H2O, you have Bridget Fonda in Lake Placid, even, swear to God, Laurie Singer in Warlock. It's been a while since I've seen that, but I, I definitely uh, have memories of her performance mm -hmm. and her character there. I mean, that seems like something that that Minor knew was going to be important to getting audiences uh, invested in this. Yes, yes. And I think we will talk more about Steve Minor, I hope. Um, 
And I think Ron Kurz, the screenwriter, of course, also deserves some credit. It's definitely one of the things that is most interesting. And you have to think like, well, why don't we get more of Ginny? And is that a blessing that, you know, she's not in the next movie or a future movie? And I'll point out that um, part three was originally going to focus on Ginny in a psychiatric hospital. That's very clearly set up at the end of the film. Uh, she doesn't seem like she has all her marbles <laughs> necessarily, unfortunately, at the end of part two. And that uh, take was scrapped when Amy Steele decided not to come back. And of course, you know, maybe it's for the best. We don't know how they would have handled her, the character, uh, and so on. She probably would have died, you know, or something. Uh, or it could have been amazing and, you know, would have taken this character the, to the character to the next level and she'd be Nancy from Friday the, um, from Nightmare on Elm Street or, you know, she could have been Laurie Strode or who knows. Uh, it depends on all the talent and the creative choices involved in the execution, but maybe it is for the best. I, you know, did a fair bit of homework for this and part of it was watching these various panel discussions of the stars of this movie going all the way up to 2021. And uh, Amy Steele said when asked what her favorite line from the film was, it's, there's someone in the fucking room, which I do absolutely love. It's probably my favorite line in some ways. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next Ginny question, which is, did Ginny pee her pants? And I did extensive research into this. Uh, most people seem to think she did. But somewhere in the conversations about the movie after the fact from filmmakers and or cast, I think it's somewhat decided that it's the rats, which doesn't entirely make sense. But in the In Search of Darkness 2 documentary on Netflix, which I highly recommend, and other sources, maybe even the novelization of this of this film, which, believe it or not, there is uh, Steve Miner interviews. There's there's certainly been statements from those involved that it was the rat, whether the, whether that makes sense to you or not. Uh, and I should point out that Ginny's pants don't seem to be wet afterwards. So I am saying definitively uh, Ginny did not wet her pants. I'm going to John, I'm going to offer a counter argument to that. Now, I understand okay. that we are operating in movie world and movie logic. But as you and Rich know, I had a. Uh, uh, a ball python, uh, about a four and a half foot ball python for, for the better part of 20 years. And I fed that ball python many, many rats. And I can tell you that a, a rat, when being squeezed to death by a four and a half foot python, will evacuate its bladder. And it is it is impossible because I've seen how much be the rat can hold down to the last <laughs> drop. There's no way that was rat pee. <laughs> a unique perspective, Vic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's... that's you could only get that here on the March Mad Men podcast, people. <laughs> yeah, that clearly comes from uh, from expert experience uh, that not everyone has. Uh, that the filmmakers themselves uh, may not have had, uh, shall we say? And that always, you know, raises the raises the debate of intent versus uh, realism. I personally am okay with it doesn't diminish Jenny if she Peter pants so it's not like I'm no she would never do that man that's not my where I'm coming from uh, I'm just saying like 
it's always been ambiguous and those involved seem to have weighed in on their original intention but i actually think it would be an entirely human thing to do depending on you know how many sodas or beers she had and she had like 20 beers at that bar as i think we talked about last time mm-hmm. so <laughs> rich anything about pee pants gate that you want to weigh in on <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to own up to the fact that uh, that having missed the last podcast about the back half, uh, I actually have no recollection of what you're talking about. But I feel like you guys are painting a very thorough picture, and uh, I'm, I, I support you. All right. Well, good. Well, good. All right. Let's move on to Jason. Um, and this is my second favorite. Uh, you know, like Ginny and Jason about this movie are, are definitely the two things I like talking about most, but there are a lot of little aspects that I think are, are fun to think about. But as I've said, I think in, in these words or different words, I think this is the only incarnation of Jason that has a psychology and human vulnerabilities. He hasn't yet become the swaggering front man for a huge global franchise. And I, I'm okay with the the good and the bad of that as far as where he is in, in his development. And here is another excerpt from Brian Kuyper of Bloody Disgusting about that. He says that Jason in this film, he's much more of a trickster. He lies in wait under a sheet for Vicky as she comes in to check on Jeff and Sandra. He pretends to, pretends to leave a cabin as Ginny hides under a cot. Uh, that's where the peeing is uh, there, Rich. Uh, but he instead climbs up on a chair in order to ambush her. He's also much more vulnerable than he would be, even starting in part three. It's hard to imagine Ted White or Kane Hodder's Jason's dropping like a rag doll after being kicked in the jimmies, for example. His makeshift house in the woods is also another element unique to this film that wouldn't be touched on again until the 2009 remake, which I, John, will also point out, as I think Rich did in the past, uh, also features a bag on Jason's head. Uh, So there's a couple of correlations there. But in regards to Jason's occasional incompetence in this film, I have come to terms with the fact that these are rookie mistakes. It's his maiden voyage. He's wet behind the ears. And yeah, sure, if this is Mortal Kombat and we're just putting all the Jasons up against each other, you know, to fight it out in a little courtyard, I don't think this one would come out on top in that particular battle. But as a take on an iconic character, I really dig the vulnerability here. And I like that this guy, this is like Batman year one or something he's at the beginning of his journey to become the most deadly and unstoppable slasher ever put to film and i will fight you guys on that if you want to debate whether it's michael or leatherface or you know freddie or somebody else maybe in our awards and wrap-up show but i think that in this movie we're getting michael jordan at the university of north carolina he's not a chicago bulls champion yet Sorry for the sports ball reference there, Rich. But one more thing that I want to mention, I'm not going to quote, but uh, Bloody Disgusting's other, another writer for them, Nat Bremer, has a great article about it on Medium, which is called Beginner's Luck, Examining Jason's Trial Run in Friday the 13th, Part 2. Uh, check it out. 
I will, John, I will agree with you. There is there is no argument about uh, Jason as the the uh, the all time leader in uh, in murder ball. Um, uh, for me, it's when he took out the space station in Jason X. Like nobody's nobody's going to top that. Michael Myers doesn't have that in him. <laughs> yeah, I just want to know from like a sports perspective, what era of Jordan's career is that? Oh, uh, University of North Carolina would, of course, be he's like 18 or 19 years old, you know, so he hasn't really become the dominant force yeah. that he would become. I think, I think he means Jason X. Oh, yeah, so I want to know what like Jason blowing up the space station like that's that's Jordan. Oh, that know, would be like space. the second set of the second three Pete would be that. No, that would no, be, no, 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 no. Look, John, you got this all wrong. That is, <laughs> see, <laughs> all right, Final Friday is like Jordan coming back to the Wizards, okay? Jason X is when Jordan has himself cryogenically frozen <laughs> until he can have his body replaced with cybernetic parts and then go back and dominate the future NBA. Yes, all over yeah. again. Right. So, yeah, we haven't we haven't hit the Jason X part of Michael Jordan's career. Okay, so yeah, like 2077, that's when Jordan really matches Jason X. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could see that. I could definitely see that. Yeah. But, I mean, I agree. I think that the vulnerability is part of what makes Jason more interesting. And it really works. I mean, the dichotomy works in that... Jenny is a a more uh, prepared, uh, a, a better foe for Jason, and Jason is not an unstoppable killing machine. He has his flaws, and so it makes the, the showdown between them more compelling than it does when Jason is an unstoppable, uh, you know, zombie killing machine versus, you know, screaming girl from fill in the blank Friday the from you know Friday the 13th part 8 or whatever that's a really great point because i think even Ginny would not be of much superior like competition to him within a couple of movies of this like it just yeah. it's no longer relevant her skills and her capabilities yeah zombie, um, so this zombie is the, jason is not impressed if she puts on a sweater yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is the right protagonist for the right antagonist to actually like uh, tussle in a way that isn't as predictable and one dimensional as it would almost inevitably become. And it, that's another argument for this film being special in that we have it's not Freddy versus Jason or something, but Ginny versus Jason is like one of the more realistic fair fights that you get with a slasher film. Um, and again, like I do still, if we want to like break down every scene in the last act again, I will say, well, that's kind of bullshit or whatever. And I, I, I will, um, you know, rescind that opinion moment to moment in some regards that I don't love everything in the way it plays out. But as we've all agreed, this character, this final girl Jenny Field seems like somebody that you give a lot of credit and she does like pretty legitimately 
intelligent things, write down not just the the thing with the sweaters, the coup de gras, of course, but she's also like just you know pretty level headed and and competent um, opponent for Jason. It's period. It's, it's believable in a way that you don't find in many slasher films. So one of the things that I, I think I mentioned already, but like a little more maybe conversation on is just how much this is a better movie than the first one. And that's not a universally held perspective, but I mean, I, I think that it's worth noting that that movie was a big hit, but with kind of shoddy, muddy cinematography and editing and scenes that don't do anything like Steve Christie at the diner, which is a scene that you don't need at all. And, you know, there's lots of things that are just kind of amateurish. And here's uh, Kuiper on the, on the, or on the filmmaking, perhaps what sets Friday the 13th part two apart most from other slashers of the period is the skill that went into its filmmaking, more attention to detail, better pacing and editing, more knowledge of the filmic language of suspense established in the Hitchcock and Giallo films that preceded it. Uh, there are certainly some shortcomings to the film, such as bizarre plot elements. Ginny apparently pees her pants when she sees a rat, something that feels strange and out of character for her, which informs Jason of her presence. There are some loose ends, including the fates of Ted and Paul and what's up with that dog. But the filmmaking prowess of director Steve Miner overshadows these issues for the most part. And, uh, before I throw it back to you guys, I also want to say, uh, defend, uh, Director of photography, Peter Stein's cinematography is, I think, owes, uh, deserves some credit for for this professionalism of the look and feel of the film. Yeah, I'll say I was, in, in going through some of the, the reviews, and especially the more recent reviews, not so much in the uh, when it originally came out, uh, people are, are sort of weirdly down on this one compared to the first film. Uh, somebody, somebody, uh, this is just from Variety, doesn't even have the writer, but the somebody Variety said, producer-director Steve Miner doesn't move in and out of scenes with the flair of original producer-director Sean Cunningham, nor is he able to create the same nauseatingly realistic murder situations. I would disagree with that vehemently. <laughs> I mean, other I, than the other than the Tom Savini uh, effects being better, of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll... I'll Granted, I'll give you that. Although I'd still love to see the uh, again the murder scene uh, in the bedroom that was that was cut so badly by the the I almost said the NCAA <laughs> by, by the MPAA. <laughs> um, uh, well, if you yeah. if you looked at the links that I sent you, uh, you could have seen it already. There you go. Uh, so yeah, so I'm sort of shocked to see those those notes from people who who sort of feel more. Uh, more nostalgia, I guess, for the the first one, uh, because I think this is obviously superior in almost every respect. Again, except for some of that. I also feel like the editing in this movie is actually pretty strong, especially for for a, yeah. a film of this this ilk. You know, it was edited by Susan Cunningham, who was the the wife of Sean Cunningham. And there's little bits like you look at the kills. Like I've I actually watched the the murder of like Mark like multiple times. And, and even though it ends with this like crazy <laughs> screaming freeze frame, zoom in um, shot, 
like the the way that the that the the kill is actually broken down where you sort of get like this like slow push in you know towards the the back of his head and then like you 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 flip around to not long enough to see his face and then back around again and like the timing on the on the hit is just right i think that there's this is actually a great example of where strong editing and, and filmmaking can essentially overcome the limitations of a sort of low budgeted film with you know I, the effects in this movie are are decent don't get me wrong but i think that part of the reason why practical effects often work is because of sharp editing like that where it's like they're kind of revealing it to the eye at just the right time and then cutting it away before you get a chance to think about it too much um so i just want to add that in there because i think that definitely mm-hmm. fits into the directorial strengths of the movie yeah, I mean, I think uh, Steve Miner was, I mean, he, he really, when I was looking into this to, to prep for this, I mean, he was really what I thought a lot about. Because there are so many nifty shots in this. And it's, you know, I think there's, the, it's it's a cut above workmanlike. And A, I think having watched as many slasher films as we have, uh, I have a new appreciation for purely workmanlike. Like, just give me base level competence uh, and that will, you know, that'll sort of catch my attention. And so there's just enough enough flair and enough thought into the shot selection. The the fade to white after Mark is killed. Uh, Terry flinging her shirt at the camera as a as a cutaway point. Uh, there's there's just some really cool touches like that. And it's, I mean, when you look at uh, at Miner's filmography. Like, I just come away from it, like, super impressed. I mean, it's because it's not someone who ever really got to A-level, you know, A-list filmmaking. But, I mean, he had 15 years of making feature films. Now, I did note that uh, uh, after making Soul Man in 1986, which is a, uh, let's say, a deeply problematic film in which C. Thomas Howell takes tanning pills in order to get a scholarship to Harvard uh, by pretending uh, to saw it in the theater. Yeah. Uh, uh, I did notice that uh, his next work after that was uh, uh, second unit director on Night of the Creeps. So I wonder if he had to go do, he had to go away for a little bit. Before he went to Hollywood uh, jail. Exactly. Yeah. Which, but I was like, but you're also like Night of the Creeps. Like that's a good fucking movie too. Um, you know, I will it, say there's not a lot of directors in this subgenre that you could have gone back in time and asked 13 to 15 year old John Evans, is this guy a good director? And I'd be like, oh, fuck, Steve Miner. He's awesome because he was on my radar all along because he, he is connected to a lot of really interesting quality films. Um, so I, I love Steve Miner. Um, yeah. He he's not just a jobber. There's no question about it. He, is he Toby Hooper? No, but you know this is the guy that stands out um, in the field of Friday the Thirteenth directors for sure. Yes, yes, uh, and and that it, again that matters, right? Like it's we're talking about the things that are exceptional about this. It's a it's a unique take on Jason. It is uh, a a better written, better performed final girl than we're used to seeing. And the the directing and the cinematography and the editing are all a, solid to uh, you know above average. That matters. I also just want to point out too. I think we talked about this before, but Steve Miner did was a supervising producer on the Wonder Years, 
uh, and directed nine episodes, I think, in the early in that that show's run. I just remember that as a kid. Like even now, I've watched a few episodes in my in my adulthood as being a really well directed show. I can't swear I saw his episodes specifically, but very sort of period specific. And you know, that's it just takes skill. Like it takes skill to be the guy who made, you know, Lake Placid, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, and you know, set the tone for the Wonder Years range versatility yeah i think he did a directed a chris sarandon lovecraft movie that i remember really liking at the time there weren't a lot of lovecraft movies in the wake of Stuart gordon stuff and it was a a pretty solid lovecraft film in the early 90s so just goes on and on and on we could just talk about him all night um i did want to mention go ahead sorry one more thing just because we talked about it so much uh, last season house Yes. I mean, come on. House is House is a pretty good movie too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was sort of a dark horse made up to like the very end, didn't it? It made it pretty far. It made it pretty far. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a unique haunted house movie that uh leaves a mark and it was just such a fun horror comedy and that's a hard thing to pull off and you know, this guy is capable of that as well as this you know, more taut suspenseful stripped down slasher movie as well uh yeah just really quick don't have too much to say about it but a lot of people criticize the editing in this film in terms of like uh jumpy jumpy edits and like dislocated things that don't make sense like with the spatiality of it like how do you cut from this to that and that doesn't but i i think it's all somewhat purposeful and and none of it feels sloppy to me so i'm more on rich's side of that argument that yeah while some of it including the mark sequence doesn't entirely make sense because like we're looming up on the back of his head and then you cut to see the front of his head and there's nobody behind him and then we're looming up on the back of his head again and then we cut and there's nobody behind him so what the fuck on some level i get that but we know jason's around (laughs) and he ultimately makes his move (laughs) i mean i mean logic logic sort of takes a holiday when he's inexplicably using the the dull side of the machete to kill person after person (laughs) yep yep that's another note uh certainly certainly something else i i know we were all to varying degrees split between whether this should represent the Friday the 13th series or part six or even part four. We should take a minute to compare it to part six a little bit in that like six reinvents Jason and that's where he becomes a zombie. We're breaking new ground in that regard. It's not just a repetition of what had been seen before. It also has that kind of sense of the folklore and the urban legend type stuff. The The camp is a big part of the setting, right? So Vic, as, as a the standard bearer for sex, like in retrospect now, has your opinion changed at all? Do you still kind of wish that part six was here instead of part two? Or where are you at with all that? In the history of slasher films, this is certainly a more important example. I have come to appreciate even, I mean, and you would think we appreciated everything there was to appreciate when you and Mike and I did this 
uh, years and years ago. But I would say even still that I have come through this process to appreciate the filmmaking and, and the performances a little bit more. Uh, and so in that in that respect, I think we, we probably put the right film in. But what I would say is that part six, number one, I think has a, just a cinematic quality. It's the, it's the one that doesn't feel so kind of scruffy and rough around the edges, which I admit is part of the charm of these. It, bal- it, it, it adds more humor that balances well with the sort of horror aspects. It's not as scary. And it, it is what most people think of when they think of Jason. When they, you know, that's the version of the character that I think really clicked and entered uh, the cultural consciousness. And I would also say that that iteration of Tommy Jarvis is probably also uh, the best antagonist or or protagonist, I suppose, antagonist for Jason, uh, but protagonist for the audience uh, after Ginny in terms of being a worthy foe of Jason. Agreed. Um, Rich, what are your thoughts on this comparison between the two films or another Friday movie? I mean, definitely six is the most fresh in my my memory. I struggled, you know, openly on this podcast with the sort of kind of goofball nature of six, because I'm with you that like in terms of just straight up iconography, I agree that it is what people remember but weirdly i remember the jason it's not the not the bag over the head like i obviously remember him with the hockey mask just like everybody else does but in terms of how his character was and and the presence uh that he had like i weirdly remember friday the 13th part two version of of jason more so than the kind of like sort of jokey like zombie jason that would that would come later they're two very different movies I mean, it's, which is weird because, like, at the at a base level, like, their two sentence plot on a piece of paper like isn't going to read like much differently. But they are very different movies in terms of like philosophy and and approach and like you know where they were in terms of like the canon, so to speak. So I, I don't know. It's a bit of an apples to to oranges comparison. I, as I've said before, I can tell you that my preference would be to watch part two again. And I think because I like its sort of no-nonsense approach to the genre, like it's not trying to really be cute or clever. It just sort of like is what it what it is. The other thing I'd say is that, you know, and this is true of any franchise that runs this long, is that the fact of the matter is that six simply can't exist without two. Six is basically just two shot through a different prism. I don't know, that doesn't speak anything as to which, which one is like a better film. Like that's purely subjective six works because it's a riff on something that was maybe not necessarily groundbreaking but again setting the mold in in part two six is fun in a way that that many slasher films are not fun or that they forget to be fun that's not really a critique of two because that's not sort of what two is setting out to be but just after after watching so many slasher films there's something so refreshing about something that that has a little bit of joyousness in 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 relishing its uh, its trappings, I think. Uh, whereas this is setting the trappings. That's not a, a mark against two so much as that. Now, I will be curious, John, because I continue to feel like four diminishes uh, the more I revisit it. And I know you were the you were really the champion for four. Is that am I remembering that correctly? 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. What's your What's your take on that now? Well, it's always had the the mystique of being the final chapter, and of being the pre-zombie Jason. We can all agree that three is goofy and imperfect, and and unintentionally funny and flawed in ways that diminish it in comparison to part four am i right in that like nobody here thinks three is better than four like let's start there right correct okay so once you once you establish that that is those are the only two pre-zombie jason movies we have with the hockey mask and so the sort of prototypical iconic jason before he turns into a lumbering undead juggernaut, that's what we have. And I think the quintessence, in my mind, the paradigm, if you're just going to say, is the paradigm of Jason, zombie Jason, or the hockey mask but alive Jason, I might be somewhat of a purist in the sense that the guy who is technically not supernatural but wears the green work shirt and the khaki pants and the black shoes and the mask is more so than part two's jason that is the iconography of of jason and then we you know we take him up levels to zombie jason and you know cyborg jason and all of that later and then he gets bigger and all of that kind of stuff but i also just think that the victims and their partying and their little stories and their little intrigues and everything with the crispin glover and the twins and you know the cory feldman and his family and all of that i think that for it's as close to the second blueprint of 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 these movies that you're going to get other than other than two. And I don't think it's like significantly more technically flawed or, you know, cinematically flawed. I certainly think the kills stack up to two, which of course, as Rich mentioned, the MPAA has cast a, a shadow over the kills in part two, other than my, great affection for the jason in part two as being unique as the sort of rookie year puppy dog jason and how much more interesting psychologically he is because he still has a brain and and so on and Ginny, those are big big pluses for two but i think a lot of the business of the stalking and the stories with the victims and all of that stuff is actually better in in four and there's just more going on and it takes it to another level in four so that in a nutshell that's my argument that i think that four is kind of close to this this movie in a lot of ways but it it successfully ups the ante and the complexity of the story and uh, you know it's you could say that the Corey feldman character and amy Steele characters have too similar of a scenario in that they both outwit jason at the end and does that diminish the value of four but i think the scenario is different enough in his case it's not terrible i don't i'm not just like rolling my eyes at that i think it works in its own on its own terms 
Well, that's a compelling case. But I, I mean, I would say at this point, would would we all agree that for our uh, intents and purposes here, that we picked the we picked the right Friday, having having now dissected it thoroughly? Yes, I, I think so. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, if we did like four again, is it entirely impossible that I would change my mind? No, but. I've always thought that this movie is a better ride than part four. Yeah, and, you know, I'll, I'll stick with that. Something that uh, a guy said, uh, Corey Callahan on horrorobsessive.com in his article in praise of Friday the 13th part two, why the second Friday is the best Friday. I think that this is relevant to our discussion of the other movies. He says, I feel like, even for its faults, including its credulity-straining premise, Part 2 is the last installment that can be, for the most part, taken seriously. I think this is partly because it takes itself more seriously than the later installments would, while still not taking itself too seriously. Another example of the film striking just the right balance. As a result, the film is still fun without being too self-aware and in on the joke. And then his parenthetical is my main complaint about the widely loved part six, Jason lives, which we've been discussing. And I think that that's a, a valid point. I think you have a small penis, John. <laughs> uh, that never, that line never lets you down there, Rick. Uh, but, but um, someone said that uh, part of what makes six work is that the director, the producers, uh, maybe it was um, Frank Mancuso Jr. at the studio at Paramount, but they were like, okay, you can have jokes, but you can never make Jason the butt of the joke. And I think that helps a lot with, with part six. Certainly by part four, the story elements aside, Jason really was a zombie. What part six did was take that element of Jason being unkillable and just gave it a, a story logic and then leaned into it in a way that that uh, certainly four to a lesser degree than two addresses Jason's psychology as a person in that finale. But it's really just in that finale. The rest of the time, he's he really is just lumbering zombie Jason, I think, for the most part. I'm not going to go to the mat over uh, over that. I mean, I find it even after admitting that, you know, I thought we had the right film that you still felt like you had to get that dig in. John is, uh, uh, you know, just it says more about you than it does about Friday the 13th part six. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love part six. Like, let the record show. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a wonderful movie <laughs> and a lot of fun. <laughs> I love almost all of these movies. I mean, even when we watched uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, I was like, wow, this is like such a guilty pleasure on some level. It, See, seven, good. seven is my guilty pleasure. Jason versus Carrie. Oh, yeah. No, I'd love that one. I love yeah. that one. Yeah. Jeez, I forget the number. That's my, that's my favorite growing up. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a, a lot to dig into as we did. But uh, we're digging into part two right now. And I think that my next order of business is what's the deal with Muffin? And this is something, yeah, we've we've speculated about it. But I wanted to go a little bit deeper into it because it's a critical decision to make in one's reading and interpretation of the film. Now, you can either say there were two animals that were in the woods with similar ribbons and one of them died 
in a violent fashion, or this is a big clue that the end of the movie is another hallucination slash dream, a la potentially Alice Hardy's experience with a 12-year-old mossy already undead presumably jason at the end of the first movie which doesn't reconcile at all with the jason who murders her mere months after that so we have to wrestle with the implications of it and i want to note that part three retcon the ending of part two by showing jason removing the machete blade from his shoulder back in the shack which would suggest when he jumped busts through the window at the end of part two and he has the machete in his shoulder that would be a clue that this didn't happen that it's a dream hallucination from Ginny. and as part three begins from there you can see him crawling away on the ground at the shack and he you know later shows up at edna and harold's store uh to upgrade his clothes it's possible that Jason attacked Ginny and then wandered off to do all of these other things, but there's a, a lot of ambiguity in this. So, I think that that's a solid breakdown. I think that there is a third consideration to be made that should be taken seriously, and that's cocaine. <laughs> cocaine bear. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think that I think that these people were were blasted out of their mind. It's a possibility. A real possibility. Muffin. Yeah. yeah. I believe this this final sequence was actually one of the was one of the first shot, or at least was very early on because it was with the the Jason that was replaced. I did a a, a bit of a deep dive on this just today, actually. This issue of the three Jasons, right? Okay, let's say two, because yes, one was the costume designer for one scene as we talked about. Warrington Gillette versus Steve Dash is one of the big bones of contention of the film. And what you're referring to there, Rich, is that the only shot where Warrington Gillette plays Jason in this movie is this busting through the window, unmasked, one eye, kind of, you know, closed Jason, where he seizes Ginny in slow motion. Um, and you get a you know a really good look at both sides of his face. That's Warrington Gillette. For the whole rest of the movie, all of those earlier scenes where we see Jason with the bag on his head, it's Steve Dash. So the question of who should be credited for Jason, I'm fine with saying, look, they both play their very important roles in defining this Jason. I'm fine with that. This is certainly a bone of contention as for many years, everyone just said Warrington Gillette plays Jason. I'm actually, I, I'm not going to necessarily blame it on cocaine because I, too much of this film is sort of carefully thought out in the, in the opening of the film <laughs> and the closing of the film, there are gaps in logic that you just have to roll with because this doesn't really make any sense. In a in a variety of ways, I actually think it's it's a just a deeply flawed, uh, arguably lazy attempt to recreate the shock from the first one, because I think they knew if they were going to make a Friday the Thirteenth movie, they had to try to replicate, if not top, that moment, and they they just didn't 
come close to it. I mean, they tried, and and I appreciate that. The first one is one of the most iconic scares in in horror movie history, I think. Whereas this one doesn't make any sense. And you can chalk it up to a hallucination. That's fine, but it makes it less scary. It just it still appears nonsensical. Uh, and then to cut from that to her, you know, g- getting wheeled into the ambulance. Again, it just feels like lazy storytelling. Like if you've got an explanation for this that makes sense, put it on film. At least give me more clues that you know what you're doing because I don't see anything in the filmmaking here that makes it make sense. It just simply appears that there are two muffins. The other element of this, and it's very much related, it's the same examination of the same part of the movie, is what happened to Paul? Like, does Paul Holt, our male lead, live or die? And I think that this is all part of the same conversation because complicating our analysis is the existence of this alternate ending, which was scripted and shot in which the severed head of Pamela Voorhees opens its eyes at the end, which gave the audience, the the reader, the viewer, whatever, the clear indication that Paul had died because this happens not long after Ginny was calling out for him, like when she's being loaded onto the uh, stretcher, taken into the ambulance. It wasn't used, the shot, because the effect uh, looked fake, but its removal also leaves Paul and what happened there in this very extremely vague, which I agree feels more sloppy than coolly enigmatic or something, or ambiguous. It just kind of leaves you in this gray area about what really happened. And, you know, there have been articles and, and pictures like behind the scene shots exist of what appears to be Paul's corpse among the dead in the shrine room. And there's like a, a photo that Paul might've had a hatchet or a hatchet wound in his face. So that would seem to settle the fact that he was dead, but Oh no, apparently he's wearing a coat in the hatchet shot because it's a cold winter night by the time they're filming all of this and John Fury is just staying warm. So it's just a goofy behind the scenes moment captured uh, by a 35 millimeter camera. Um, I mean, like a still camera. People have gone crazy interpreting what it meant uh, after the fact for the story. I will throw all of that out with the statement that to me, this is a very bizarre and ambiguous ending. I have more or less landed that the beginning of this movie suggests that the attack with the canoe with young undead seaweedy Jason was in her mind. So it's a bookend in a sense. It had her traumatic experience had more or less driven her insane, even though it's somewhat prophetic for what would actually happen. None of this is airtight logic, I I understand. But there is a clarity or a a unity of intention here that this movie ends with Ginny, unfortunately, is also out of her head at the end of the movie and has lost touch with reality because of her trauma. And we cannot trust her memory either because she's Jason's going to be popping out of windows for her the rest of her life as well. 
that's the problem. And I think you really hit the nail on the head, right? Is none of this really feels intentionally ambiguous. It all feels like some shit got left out in the editing room because the effects didn't work. I mean, yeah. I, like, again, the, the, the first one, it really is, A, like, there's no, there, there's no logic that, that sort of applies to it. And but I sort of buy it in that sense, like in the in the encapsulated as a single film, somehow they came up with this really terrifying image. And in the context of the story, it's you know, it has enough backdrop to be really scary. Right. Like we know who this kid is. We know why he's covered in seaweed, whatever else. So it just works when you start the second film. You either have to work those retcons into the dialogue or into your your 37-minute flashback, or you have to ignore it. Because if you just ignore it, if you just start this movie off, if all you have to go on is Paul telling the story of Jason, well, then it makes perfect sense. But because you give us this flashback, because you, you make that part of the story, it doesn't make sense. And so it just feels incongruous it, it, they're two puzzle pieces that just don't fit we can as podcasters and and horror film lovers try and jam those pieces together this way and that and some of the ways that i think we've all come up with uh, over our our now storied history of analyzing this franchise i think some of those ideas are pretty cool and i wish the filmmakers had thought of them Yes. Because it would be great if some of that was actually in the movie, but it's not. And so it's the same thing with the ending. You and I talked about this in the last episode. I love the idea of scrapping Jason jumping through the window. That is a tired rehash of what worked in the first one. And instead, just ending on that slow zoom in on the corpse and the eyes opening. Because, again, that that feels coolly ambiguous. That feels like sort of a nightmare feeling that feels maybe of a piece of what's happened because we have the context around the head, because we we have an understanding of Jason's madness and his psychology. That's a really good way to end the movie. The way they did it, the doppelganger muffin, which is just not a phrase I ever thought I would say. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, it just it just feels lazy. It just feels like, all right, like, you know, you can see the producers going, you, you've got to do this. we got to have this at the end of the movie. And Steve Miner kind of pulling his hair out going, OK, let's do this. I think you're right, obviously, in yeah. the real world. Obviously, obviously, John, obviously I'm right. <laughs> Thank you. I just want Vic to have a shirt that says there were two muffins. And I want him to wear it around a horror convention somewhere waiting for recognition. <laughs> I will do that, Rich. <laughs> I have no doubt. This is not going to segue in any way. Just random interlude, John's <laughs> Corner. I happened to watch a Lucio Fulci movie on Shudder, uh, Vic, called Enigma that I think you should check out. Because I really believed we had seen every worthwhile Lucio Fulci movie. I had not seen this. It's sort of like a Patrick meets Suspiria. So um, I think you should uh, give it a look. It's it's kind of a hoot, honestly. Enigma? Yeah. yeah. Enigma. Like, Enigma with an A. I don't know. 
Uh, Rich, you you may or may not like. I don't know how much into Fulci you are. We haven't really covered that. I've not gone deep into the Fulci rabbit hole. I think we I think we yeah. talked about this a bit when we were getting into our Italian <clears throat> when we had our Italian phase on this podcast. Yeah. Earlier in this competition, Jesus. Well, mostly Argento in that in that regard, but yes, yes. Mm-hmm. We touched on it earlier. I did want to say that the uncut kills question about this film and how much that limits it that 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 we didn't get to see them as they were designed by the the makeup artist uh who who went on to do some other cool things as it stands without question the first movie's kills are a lot gorier and more graphic obviously kevin bacon's demise comes to mind and as we all know, the MPAA made part two's filmmakers cut the kills down to the bone. But apparently, uh, I just stumbled across this, but in 2020, Shout Factory obtained some deleted footage that made its way to YouTube, and I watched it the other night. And honestly, overall, I'll say it doesn't seem like a huge deal watching these unedited kills, or at least the surviving footage. Maybe there was footage that doesn't survive that would have been meaningfully better. I will give you guys a quick recap. Alice Hardy's kill in the open, this is actually the most meaningful uh, deleted thing in the whole movie for me. So as we all know, Jason stabs this ice pick into the side of Alice's head. Well, the extra shot, has the end of the ice pick coming out of the side of her nose. So I guess the idea is that he stabs it through her brain at like this weird angle that it penetrates the inside of her nasal cavity and then it pops back out on the other side of her nose. And she kind of sticks her tongue out too and cuts her scream short. So it's it's jarring. It's like wow, like it amp it does amp the impact of the kill up to another level. But there's some, you know, little issues, too. The ice pick goes through her head like a knife through butter. I know he's strong and everything, but it's a little too smooth and easy. And I didn't entirely understand or believe the physics of it. But uh, I do think that in this case, it's a cool visual that takes the kill to the next level. And it actually plays in at the end because you can see that the, the corpse that they have in the shrine room has the ice pick kind of through her face and sticking out of her nose just like in this deleted scene uh but yeah you don't really get much of a a view of it and then uh scott you know the guy that's uh such a horn dog going after terry the upside down guy he's got you know he steps in a snare and his throat is cut and this this was actually pretty good too there's lots of gurgling and blood sheeting down his face it's definitely more effective and I did think it was actually quite uh, disturbing, the the full kill as they let it play. So that that actually, yeah, there's two two meaningful improvements in this uh, uncut footage. But uh, that's it, man. Because I was really thinking that Jeff and Sandra, right? That's the couple who get the the spear through them, a la Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, while in the midst of coupling. This one's kind of underwhelming. I, I, I really thought it would be the best one. Jeff's back, which you see they they punch this spear through. It looks obviously fake to me, and the texture and the skin tone just seem off. 
The only thing I liked about it was the bonus seconds of Sandra's horrified face, you know, spattered with blood as she takes this in and uh, expires on camera. I thought that kind of added something, but uh, I really thought that that was like going to be this awesome Friday the 13th kill that we never got to see. And, you know, it, it was just technically not that impressive. So we so we missed a little bit, but not nothing nothing earth shattering. Yeah, that's that's my report basically is that those first two kills, if we had that extra you know couple of seconds, I think it would be would be value added, but not game changers. And nothing reveals the fate of Terry or Ted. None of that, nothing like that was ever shot. Yep. God, wait, no, 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 no. we know what happens to Terry. Well, you, you see her at the end. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Vic and I watched that. Vic and I watched it. But, Rich, uh, you see her at the end, but there's not a mark on her. She's just kind of lying there asleep in the in the shrine room. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So, 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 we, so we don't know what happened between A and C, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I, know, I know what happened between A and C, Rich. <laughs> you, 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 missed, you missed this. Okay. But uh, my, my theory is Terry being the sort of resident just hot girl i believe that jason uh, uh purposefully killed her in a way so as not to leave any marks or damage her so that he could take her back to his shack i believe uh one of or the only other body besides uh, adrian king who gets back to the, who he takes back uh for purely necrophiliac purposes it's a theory <laughs> yeah okay sure <laughs> Reg, we'll talk about it later, man. But I, I feel pretty strongly that this is actually what happened. She is fully clothed in the shot, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, maybe you know, just keeping her uh, on deck, I guess. I, I'm running out of things to say, so I hope maybe you guys have a couple more. But I did want to touch on one of the last kind of ongoing fan debates or topics of conversation over the years, which is Jason's look unmasked. And apparently some fans really reject the fact that he's not bald in this. I mean, given that we see in the first movie, he doesn't have hair when he's like the little possibly real, possibly not flashback kid. And then after this movie, he suddenly has that iconic bald look sans facial hair as well. Like he seems incapable of growing hair by part three and from beyond, which suggests, okay, so does that Jason shave his face and his head, or is this a medical condition, or is he just dead and thus hairless, or whatever? And my counter-argument is, I think the part two look that we get here is actually quite realistic and believable. And for me, the dolphin smooth look is a lot more problematic given that his IQ drops to about 50 at that point and or worse, and we're just kind of left to figure out explanations for why uh, he's hairless. I think that this is the more grounded and, and gritty and authentic and believable look. John, I, I physically shuddered when you described him as, as dolphin smooth. <laughs> yeah. Second half. <laughs> uh, I, I always think of the walking dead with that phrase i don't know if anyone you know, will pick up that reference but 
there's a season of Walking Dead with a character who's proud of being dolphin smooth. So that's kind of where I got that. I don't love the makeup in it. The hair works. It comes from what seems to me a genuinely thought out vision of what this person would look like living in the woods for somewhere between months and years. Uh, because that's that's obviously a little a little vague, but yeah, like it it, it sort of fits in a uh, in, in a wrong turny sort of way. The, the pillowcase itself is like the I know that they were like inspired by Town of the Dread Sundown, but yeah. it's just like the the degree to which it looks like the Town of the Dread Sundown is really like shameful. But um, okay, pillowcase removed. I would say you know like Vic, this is I think you were sort of in this as well what i'll say for it as a as a prosthetic and an effect is that it plays much better than it really should like i actually think like it's a relatively believable for like a full-on head replacement and like i buy it as this this character at this point i mean like as we said though you can call into question what the level of reality of this scene is you can certainly call into question like how much this actually aligns with what you see in the first film. So uh, I don't know like how much time is worth spending of the people on the, the the internet who have gone through this before. Like how much is it worth really trying to like parse out a through line between this and the Jason you see at the end? You know, other than the fact that like producers wanted to to, to you know play the hits uh, once again here. But from an like just like an effects point of view, by all accounts this should just look straight up stupid. And, you know, it, it actually is all right. Like you said, like I, I find it's like relatively believable given the genre and, you know, time and place that we're in. Rich, I just want to make the case that since this was released in 1981, I think it's clear that the inspiration for the bag over the head was Fear Street 78, not the town oh. of Dread Sundown. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> Wow, I really didn't think Vic was going to work that in, but uh, he found which a way. Was, which was shot at the same camp as this. What? Really? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. true, isn't it? That makes well, me like even more disappointed in the outcome of that film's production. God, I hate you so much. <laughs> well, well Chris, Crystal Lake does have something like a dozen camps surrounding it, apparently. I'm sure we'll have time to maybe, you know, jump into this at some point in the future. But as of this recording, there's going to be a Crystal Lake TV show, which will be a Pamela Voorhees prequel, probably a la the Annie Wilkes show that was on. There's also today, as we record, may mean nothing, but there was like a, another like blurb on Bloody Disgusting about some thawing of the legal battle between Victor Miller and Sean S. Cunningham regarding the future of the franchise and a, and a the rights to a sequel and uh, yet another sequel. And apparently, like, the gist of it has come down to Victor Miller, one in court, writes to Pamela and Crystal Lake and technically Jason Voorhees. So any any subsequent iterations of these characters... He has to get his financial uh, stake in it, but maybe they've negotiated something. But it's still all very early stages. So as of now, we're still 14 years out from the last Friday the 13th movie, which is kind of blow, you know, blows my mind in some ways. 
I uh, I did read that Adrian King has signed on as uh, a, either a guest star or a series regular on the prequel as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did have one more note about her that I didn't work in earlier, so thank you for the segue. I just wasn't going to say it. But uh, she has said that she wishes she'd agreed to come back for a larger part in the sequel. Everything with the stalker and, you know, all that notwithstanding, she's said that she didn't know she came back to die and she didn't love that. She also didn't love uh, a random dude stabbing her with a retractable ice pick that didn't retract and put a nice little mark on her. We talked about this, but many weird, you know, injuries and stuff. Things didn't go perfectly on the shoot. But uh, one last thing I did want to say that the actress thinks that uh, it's possible that part two is just another post-traumatic shock dream for Alice. It would kind of explain Jason being a child two months ago, uh, for example. Apparently the fan film Jason Rising, which I really meant to watch before this podcast, but which I didn't, I think she said that that film supports this interpretation just, you know, something else to to think about that's not entirely implausible given the surreal dream logic that bookend the film. The dream logic part of it is some of my some of my favorite ideas around it. And like I said, we've had some really wonderful fun discussions about it. But it just doesn't feel like the people making the movies had those same discussions. So it's I, I hope that uh, in future iterations and in uh, this this prequel that they're they're talking about, I hope that they lean into it because I think that that adds a really fascinating layer, much like the conversations that we had around the astrology in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think there's room for that in in here, and it's I, oftentimes when I feel like when people take up this idea of a, a a prequel or a reboot, the take is always a grounded take. We're gonna do like a super grounded take on it, uh, and I don't need that. I know what I know the grounded take on slasher film. Give me something more interesting. Give me something that has some some layers to it of ambiguity and mysticism or whatever you wanna whatever you wanna do with it. But get somebody smart in there and, and do something fun and interesting. I totally agree. Uh, give us a bigger mythology, a more ambitious, like conceptually daring mythology to, to put some of this into a context we haven't considered before. Like that would be exciting. I totally agree with you. Okay, well, I'm going to throw it back to you guys like for any of your remaining things on the laundry list that uh, we haven't gotten into. But I do have two first random kind of funny laughs to close out on i think uh there was a guy on horror news net tin mask who wrote this and i i think it's worthy of uh touching on he says mark clearly tells vicky he can find a way to get it on one way or another which to me implies He's going to fist her or something. But that doesn't stop Vicky. She goes and she gets her sexy pair of brown panties. When I think of sexy time, I think of brown panties. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But before Vicky can have Mark run over her snatch with his wheelchair or whatever the hell it is he does to pleasure women, uh, he gets offed by Jason. 
And uh, somehow with a machete stuck in his head, he manages to wheel himself backwards down the stairs from the exorcist. (laughs) (laughs) Those are absurdly steep set of stairs. And then, um, and yeah, you can jump in on either or both of these ideas. He also talks about Ted. And my question to you is, do you guys think Ted should have died or is it better this way? And he says, I would love nothing more than to have Ted get killed in the future Friday the 13th, just to show that no one like Ted ever escapes Jason. Maybe have Ted doing some prop comedy at a stand-up club and Jason just walks in <laughs> and sits down. <laughs> Everyone laughs at the horrible jokes except Jason. As the set wears on, Ted notices the weird guy in the hockey mask not laughing and points him out to the crowd. Jason then gets up, grabs a mallet, and crushes Ted's head Gallagher style. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I thought that I got a good laugh out of that. So thank you, uh, uh, Tin Mask. So, yeah, you guys want to deal with any of those issues? (laughs) (laughs) I kind of I kind of love that, Ted. Again, there is no deleted scene that explains Ted. Like Ted is a Mm -hmm. character that is threaded through the entire film only to just like completely disappear with his arc basically complete. Like he made it to the party. And he was going to stay at the party. And you know what? And he is the smartest person in the entire film with the, with the best result. Like Ted is a, is a perfect character. Ted, Ted is actually in another movie. He just happens to have an overlap in this one and appear in a few scenes. Ted stumbled into like, can't hardly wait. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ted's After Hours is the short film I want to see, where he, after the bar, he finds the After Hours party and uh, then finds out what happened at the camp. But, yeah. but like, I have, I have no feeling that there is some deleted scene that just didn't make it into the, the cut that, that explains Ted. I think like that was it. Like That's Ted's last appearance in the script. Actually, we, we covered that while you were gone last time. Like there's a scene that feels like a development executive or something saying, well, people are going to be like, what happens to Ted? And then so <laughs> they just show him say, hey, to some like this weird elderly <laughs> couple. He's like, are there any after hours around here? And they go, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that cut. <laughs> Problem solved. That's how you inject ambiguity into a Freddy the 13th movie. <laughs> that one they actually made an effort to sew up in a, in a logical fashion, that particular plot hole. I don't know. Vic, uh, last time, he's like, he thought the brown panties were an upgrade. That's not what the internet is saying, Vic. Uh, she should have stuck with the first panties. Oh, no, not what the internet is saying, John. Look, John, my, my kinks are mine, okay? I don't have to explain that to you or fucking anybody you read on the internet, okay? She's very sexy in her outfit, and I support her choices. So Vic is a brown panty guy. <laughs> She could have she could have gotten me up out of that wheelchair. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think Vic, Vicky can do no wrong. Yeah, no, Vicky is absolutely a a, a wonderful presence on screen. Uh, okay, well, that's all I got, guys. Uh, final thoughts? Anybody want to broach a new topic? I'm I'm open. 
I don't have a new topic, but I found a uh, I found a quote that for me very succinctly summed up my thoughts on this. This is from uh, a guy named James Kendrick on something called the Q Network Film Desk, who said Friday the Thirteenth Part Two cannot be defended intellectually, yet the film's very simplicity and directness gives it a kind of folkloric power albeit a power that works only if you give yourself over to it. That word folkloric power, that phrase rather, uh, is really sort of it. And that's part of what I've really come out of this this dissection with is that thing, that, that belief that, yeah, you cannot, you just cannot defend this movie intellectually. Like the, the plot holes in the, the, in the beginning, the plot holes at the end, they just are. And so you you sort of have to you you have to accept it. You have to accept the film on its terms and be like, look, like that shit doesn't work. The shit that does work does have a kind of folkloric power. It is the campfire tale that we've talked about multiple times in, in going through the genre and in, in this film, especially a literal campfire tale. The campfire tale works. That part of it is is really effective. There's a reason that Jason is the poster boy for slashers. More than more than Michael Myers, more than Leatherface, more than Freddy, Jason is who we think of when we think of this type of film. And this movie lays the groundwork for that. And it's it's often imitated, uh, but it's never duplicated. There's superior filmmaking, there's terrific acting, the cinematography, the editing, the music, the writing that leads to this this duel between uh, an actually competent heroine in our last girl, Jenny, and a, a flawed and believably grounded uh, slasher in Jason makes that work. Like I said, it makes it believable. It makes it grounded. It makes us invested in it. It makes that last moment when she puts on mom's sweater, everything just builds up to it. They set up everything with the car and the car not working it's there's there's too much smart filmmaking in here for you for for anyone to dismiss this as you know any of the the sort of mass of slashers that followed in its footsteps it's too bad that more people don't recognize it because the reviews are are really so roundly negative from when it came out uh, I'm glad that we are are reappreciating it. You guys have uh, done some research and found some of the people who look back on it now and and really recognize the things that are good about it. But you have to recognize the things that are good about it and accept the things that are bad about it. And uh, I, I think those things are are to the film's detriment, uh, but they are by no means uh, too much to to make this film dismissible in any way well said Uh, obviously art is rarely completely beyond reproach or perfect and it's all subjective and is this high art no clearly not but there are a lot of sort of alchemical i like the folkloric word there things that are part of movie magic and the the mystique of of jason and of these films that time and time again in our conversations we, we just kind of keep coming back to the idea that lightning in a bottle, whatever it is, like this movie is a sort of quintessence of this primal, our fascination with a character like Jason and with stories like this. So that's a great summation. Rich, no pressure, but man, you got to follow that. 
I, I do not. Um, we, I know that we're not quite moving on to like the, the, the next round just yet. You know, I, I don't have a, have a big colorful windup, but I, I do think that this film, each of the, the four films that, that we've picked all sort of are kind of of the same ilk, you know, but like generally speaking of the, of the same era and yet they all kind of serve different roles and aspirations for the the filmmakers and what's interesting is this one i mean like you were talking about like art and you know and what, what you were saying there vic and the thing is, is that like you know i i don't i don't mean this is any shade towards this towards this movie is that like this movie on the surface, if you read about it, if you listen to the the interviews about it, like this one probably had art the least on its mind. Like the the story of this movie reads like, as you described, Vic, a, a shaggy group of people came together with a bunch of money hungry producers and a distributor who saw the ability to strike while the arm was hot and capitalize on some schlock that essentially had hit like a little bit of a, you know, a golden vein for them. And so this was definitely a meant to be a money-making tool and would continue to, to, to be an, an exploitative uh, money-making tool for Paramount in a variety of ways. I think what's really notable about this is that this was not art school students from, from, Austin, Texas, or, or auteurs turning uh, Los Angeles into to Haddonfield. Like, this was really, like, a bunch of youngsters and second stringers from the first film who really came together to cobble together a product. And yet, despite those odds, they ended up making something that seems to stand shoulder to shoulder with these other horror films that had higher aspirations. And, you know, I don't know exactly how you how you chalk that up other than like this movie just had a certain chemistry that really worked out in that regard. And so, uh, yeah, I think it has an interesting role in terms of this top four for that reason. I'm really glad you you said that because I hadn't thought in at least in the context of tonight that we have Halloween one Black Christmas one Texas Chainsaw one. And Friday the 13th, too. That is a compliment in and of itself. That the second movie, all statements about aliens and Empire Strikes Back and so on aside, it's pretty unusual for the second movie to be standing in there with the the classics, the first movies that made the noise in the first place. So that's, that's really a feather in this film's cap. Okay, well, let's say goodnight then. I don't have anything witty written up, but uh, it's been an exhausting journey uh, of months to, to make our way through this film. And um, as much as I've enjoyed it, I have nothing left. So let us move forward in our lives and in this process. And I certainly hope you all have enjoyed the journey. And we love Friday the 13th. And 
Uh, I can't wait to see what shakes out as we pit these four films against each other for the final honor of greatest slasher movie ever made. But first, we got to talk about John Carpenter's Halloween. And I look forward to that conversation with all of you. Adios.